listeners. Welcome to While the Applause is Paused, conversations with regional theater makers. I'm your host, Lacey Tucker. Join me as I talk with artistic leaders around the country about what's challenging and constricting, or creative and exciting, or all of the above, in the pandemic. Curtain up on some real conversation for these real times. This week, we welcome Sean Daniels, Artistic Director of the Arizona Theatre Company in Tucson and Phoenix. Sean Daniels has been the Artistic Director at Arizona Theatre Company since 2019. He is a director, arts administrator, and playwright. Sean has been named one of the top 15 up-and-coming artists in the U.S., whose work will be transforming American stages for decades to come, and one of seven people reshaping and revitalizing the American musical by American Theatre Magazine. Sean directed The Lion at Manhattan Theatre Club, which won the Drama Desk and Theatre World Awards and was nominated for the Lucille Lortel and Outer Critics Circle Awards. The show then transferred to London's West End and won Best New Musical. He is directed at the Kennedy Center, Arena Stage, ACT, Milwaukee Rep, the Old Globe, the Geffen Theater, Portland Center Stage, and Cleveland Playhouse, among many others. His directions and shows have won Best Play and Best Director in London, the Bay Area, Boston, Portland, Rochester, and Atlanta. He was previously the artistic director of Merrimack Repertory Theater, and he spent four years at the Tony Award-winning Actors Theater of Louisville as the theater's associate artistic director, where he directed 17 productions, including five Humana festivals. Before that, he was the associate artistic director and resident director of the California Shakespeare Theater, and before that, the artistic director and co-founder of Dad's Garage Theater Company in Atlanta. He has developed new work all over the country at places including the Eugene O'Neill Theatre Center, Ars Nova, and New York Stage and Film. As a playwright, his work has been produced at Actors Theatre of Louisville, City Theatre, Merrimack Repertory Theatre, and Dad's Garage. He was the first ever playwright authorized by the Jack Kerouac estate to adapt his work for the stage. Which is definitely my favorite fact of all of these amazing credits because On the Road is my favorite book of all time. This conversation with Sean reveals so many things, not the least of which is the unique circumstances in Arizona during the pandemic in that the state never closed down, and what it's been like to make or not make theater there. So without further ado, here is Sean Daniels. Hi, Sean Daniels, Artistic Director of Arizona Theater Company. How are you doing today? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on the show. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you on the show. And our mutual friend, Carissa, made a a shidduch, as we say in Yiddish. And we'll talk about Carissa because I know that you are producing her one-woman show, as you told me before we started recording, on your first live in-person show. She will be our first show back, which means that who knows how those first couple previews will go because we will all just weep. (laughs) through them to be back in a room to have music playing and i've had the the great pleasure of seeing a run-through of that show my 80 year old boyfriend and it makes you weep anyway so Mm. it'll be like double weeping those first couple nights back i think we all just imagine them now but i imagine that there'll be really beautiful rituals of the first time you sit in your seat and you get your program or you look at your program on your phone and 
the first time the lights go down and you hear the piano start. And these are these will be probably the closest to spiritual experiences that many of us will have in our life. You just made me want to get on a plane to Arizona. So I'm going to have to put that in my back pocket and think yeah. about it. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. And we can sure. talk more about that. And But I would love to back up and talk about the Arizona Theater Company, what its history is, if you want to tell us that, and your mission and the nature of the community that you serve. Arizona Theater Company is in its 54th season coming up. So it's been around really one of the longer regional theaters to be able to do it. I fell in love with theater at Arizona Theater Company. I grew up in Mesa, Arizona, just outside of Phoenix. Uh, which is like a like very charming middle-class suburb of Phoenix. My parents were subscribers and donors, which we feel like everybody should be, and they brought me to every show that they went to, which at the time I thought was that they were just like really forward-thinking. But now I realize they were just lazy, and they just bought subscriptions, and they just took us. Because <laughs> looking back, many of the shows were not appropriate for us at any given age. They took us to Private Lives, which is a show about married people having affairs and the comedy of that. And I just laughed when the rest of the crowd laughed. But I, they took me to see Our Town there, and mm-hmm. it changed my life in terms of what it was. Spoiler alert, they're all dead. And they're <laughs> trying to figure out like what parts of life need to be celebrated or we don't celebrate because we don't realize how precious it is. And I just remember just being blown away by that and wanting to talk about it afterwards and be a part of it. And so it's a real honor to have come full circle and to be able to run the organization that so affected my life when I was a kid, to really be able to change me and to make me want nothing but a life in the theater, which worked out well because I started in May of 2019. So I was here for about eight or nine months before we shut down. So it was good to have a deep love of the place in you to be able to figure out what's going to happen for the next, which we didn't know at the time, but the next 16 months afterwards. One of the things that we have done in this time is really try to use it, two things that we've done. One is to really just examine who we are and try to figure out what kind of organization do we want to be. We all work at theaters which are under-resourced, right? So when we say we're going to do a deep dive into anything, what we really mean is we'll work on this over the next several years to be able to get at it because we just don't have the time to be able to do it. And if it wasn't for this, I would have stepped right in. I would have gone straight to it. We'd make some changes, but really it takes you like three years to begin to make changes because you're just doing so much. Because we have to produce a certain amount to be able to bring income in and we're under-resourced and we don't always have the staff to be able to do it. So what's been amazing about This time is really using it to figure out, like, what type of organization do we want to be? And actually, then it's great to be a new artistic director. It's great to be able to come in and be like, here's the place that we're going to go and be able to work on that. So the thing, we came up with a new vision statement. We have a vision and mission statement. And people call them different things. But we were really inspired by, in the 80s, I think it was IBM, said, a computer in every home. And at the time, everybody was like, that is crazy talk. The thing we have really set out for uh, ourselves, our vision statement that we're working with right now to be able to push forward is that we want the lives of every Arizonan to be transformed through the power of live theater, which sounds large, but we think it's the same way to be able to say in 30 years, we'll be able to say every Arizonan's life is not just touched, but is transformed. One of the things that we've started doing 
along those ways that has been helpful. So right when the pandemic started, we had this fear, which I think everyone did. Like, how are we gonna communicate with our subscribers? How are we gonna communicate with our donors? We were like, we'll do digital offerings. And we were like every other regional theater. Like before this had happened, we were terrible at it. We put ads on Facebook and no one responded. And that was the end of our thinking. We're like, well, I guess we tried. And so we even started like a weekly talk show to be able to say every Friday at four, let's just connect with our audience to be able to say, how are you doing? How are we doing? And all of our digital offerings really took off. We have some episodes of our talk show, 14,000 people ended up watching it. That was my mouth open, jaw dropped, because that's really incredible. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. We had a concert from London that a friend of ours recorded that 17,000 people watched. And we did this thing with 24-hour plays. Mark Armstrong's really brilliant organization worked with us to be able to do it. And 24,000 people watched. And so we were like, oh my God, we did it. We're so awesome. And then we did some research into the numbers and found out that almost none of our subscribers and donors were part of those digital people that were listening. Our That's subscribers, fascinating. Yeah, our, our subscribers, many of them are, are right in line with the average ticket buyer in the country, which is like a late 50s in terms of age at the young end of it. And so they love theater. They love being live. When we return to having live performance, they'll be there. But they don't need to have a digital offering every week to be a part of it. So what we accidentally stumbled upon, which I feel like is a little bit like finding penicillin, you know, which was not originally (laughs) intended as uh, the thing that we use it for now, is that we have discovered a real new audience, which I think is a much younger and much more diverse audience uh, who is game to experience art in a virtual way or was game before but they just thought we were too we thought too much of ourselves or we were too expensive or you had to dress up to come to the theater or you were gonna feel dumb or our online ticketing software required you to register and you didn't want to register you just wanted to buy and so I think we've stumbled upon connecting to this new way I'm so curious now because you have a new audience and first of all are they mostly in Arizona they are, they are mostly in Arizona. There is some from all over, and there's definitely some like industry people from all over, but for the most part, they are Arizonans. Okay, and then secondly, you said as you were going into it, you thought it was for your donors and your subscribers and your patrons, and so the choices that you made in terms of the material that you presented were they, because I was going to ask you a follow-up question about the shows that you said you saw as a child there, were really in the classic canon of what regional theaters do. And of course, everyone should see Our Town, no question. Right. As the theater moved along in its history, had its offerings changed, it's certainly a one-woman show that is new is different from Our Town. And so it sounds like you were moving in maybe different directions or diversifying your offerings, but then all these young, different people are watching. Were they watching something like Our Town or what were they watching? No, so we were, it's a great question. Arizona Theater Company, even before I got here, had already moved away. It was not a classics theater. When I applied for the job, the thing I'd said to the search committee was like, you're doing the hardest thing possible in the least sexy way. You are doing sort of new plays, but you're doing plays that your audience still doesn't know. Because we all know, really, how many plays does the average person know? 40? 50. And then there's all these plays that are within the last 15 years that are regional theater staples. But the average audience member has no idea what these plays are. So you still have to announce it. You still have to convince them. You still have to have a graphic and a plot that sounds like they're interested. 
in coming to be able to do it. But because you're not doing like world premieres, you're doing a, a, a play and you have to convince your audience really hard and nationally, the field doesn't really care that you're doing it. They're, like, they're glad that you're doing it. They're glad that somebody's doing it and that people are working, but the playwright doesn't come. It's not thought of as one of the, the central productions and how we think about it. They were already doing that. They were already doing Sarah Rule and they were already doing things like that where it's like, uh, average audience member in Arizona doesn't know who that is. But Sarah Rule isn't coming out to the production out here. So the only tweak that I have made is to try to move us to the top of the food chain and say, we should be premiering these shows. We should be developing them. We should put them out. Because I feel like development is a, such a great way to bring an audience into how a show happens to be able to let them be a part and root for it. In Arizona, we really understand spring training. We really understand the idea that you can see the best in the world up close before the season starts, before anybody else, for a quarter of the price. Like we understand that idea perfectly, right? All of March, everybody comes here and we do it. And theater could be the same way. You could be seeing shows before the rest of the world for a quarter of the price and get like a level of access that you would never get. Last year, I went to a Dodgers spring training game and Tommy Lasorda was like hanging out in the audience and, and saying hi to people. It's, that's what new plays are to be able to do. Playwright is there, the director is there, the actors are there, they're in your community. And so by the time that you eventually get to see the big thing, whether it's on Broadway or at a theater, or you see the Dodgers in a real game. You can no longer go talk to Tommy Lasorda, but you can But you can tell everybody how you saw them earlier. So that's the only tweak that we've been doing. I will say our digital season was wildly more diverse than I think the uh, offerings that we'd had before. So that might've also been part of what attracted people to it. But I think for the most part, it was just meeting our audience or this new audience where they're at and for them to be able to do it. I can't remember who I was talking to, but this idea that during the pandemic, there was really nothing to lose. So what you said made me think about that. Do something wildly different than what you might otherwise do because we're doing virtual pandemic theater. We don't know who's going to come watch it. There's literally nothing to lose. Well, and a lot of it was like, how do we support artists? So we paid every artist that was a part of our online offerings. If we produced your work in a reading, you got paid. And so part of it was very much that same thing with like, how can we be of service to a playwright who's moving a play along? Because I don't know who's going to watch. Nobody may watch. So I at least hope that you get something out of it. Whereas, not to keep harping on private lives, but if we did an online reading of private lives, like... Uh, on some level, who cares? Like, I'm glad those actors got to work, but that money is just going to go to whatever company now owns the rights of that to be able to do it. Right. Oh, and so that's at least such a if we're point. developing a play and the playwright gets some time, gets to move that play along a little bit, gets a little bit of money to be able to help, it's all, it's, it's how we can help. Because the toughest in all of this, even though theaters will fold, the toughest in all of this is individual artists and freelance artists who had counted on, I always do a show here, I always do a show here, and they didn't have suddenly that backup. Yeah, you're so right. And as terrible as it is, a lot of staff has been furloughed. Yeah, and we had, I know some places that haven't closed but have laid off their entire staff, including their artistic director. So maybe they'll come back. Not today. Yeah. How have you been doing on that front? So we had, at the beginning of 
last March. I believe we had somewhere between 97 and 107 employees. And we had 27 employees by the end of the month. So we laid off the majority of our staff to be able to do it. And the tough part of that is not, part of it is financial, right? It's that, at that point, you're just trying to say, we need to survive. How can we do this? But so much of it is going into a pandemic and figuring out like how we do things digitally online. We don't need bartenders and we don't need carpenters and we don't need a front of house staff and we don't, we don't need a five person costume shop that's just been the toughest part of our industry is suddenly these things that were such staples that we had to cut back on because that was just not what the need is. We needed kick-ass digital. We needed a sound department. We needed all of our development and marketing to be able to do it. But that's been, I think, the tough part is that the artists have taken it the hardest. And in terms of the audio and the visual components that you did need, were those people you already had on staff or did you have to go out and find those people? So it's a great question. So we have now on staff two different visual kind of engineers in terms of being online producers, one of which we had to go out and find and steal from another theater, somebody who works in that same position for a big theater in New York. And we just said, do you want to work for us also on the side? And they said yes. And then another was a person who was in our artistic and marketing department who was able to say, I'll learn how to do video editing. And somebody who was able to read the writing on the wall and say, I'm gonna learn a skill that you're gonna need because now everything, we don't put out anything that doesn't require video editing. Everything at least gets a little bit at the beginning and a little bit at the end to be able to put it together. And some of our bigger things, like we're a theater that prides ourselves on quality in terms of saying that you may not like everything that we put on. I promise you, actually, you will not like everything that we put on, but I promise you that it will all be done well and it will all be done in a world-class way for us to be able to support the artists. And so online needs the same promise. If we're putting out a video or we're putting out a reading, it's not just going to be zoom on at the beginning and then everybody leaves the meeting at the end. That maybe worked at last March and April. That is no longer what people expect in terms sure. of their online content. For sure. And did you start out that way and then have a big learning curve or did you wait until you could put something out at the standards that you were used to? No, we, th- we did an online reading of a play that we really invested in production value. But our, our talk show is actually amazing to watch because the first time we did it was just like, we all got on Zoom and then we clicked live to Facebook. And that was our very first episode. And then we figured out like what works and we booked too many guests. And now we have one guest per hour and we have a kind of very slick opening and stuff like that. But yeah, we learned along the way because, and I think we're still learning. And people, what they're interested in, right, is also shifting, like how much online fatigue people have. I think people are still game to watch things online, but they're only game to watch something that really interests them because of the content. It's at the beginning, we were all just so hungry. We were mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, Stephen Sondheim's having a birthday. I'm going to watch the whole thing. I don't care if it's a tech disaster. I just want to see. And now we'd be like, why don't you get your shit together? And then you can let us know when you have it. So I just think we're also trying to learn what are people responding to at the same time we're trying to figure out how to do it how do you price your offerings and how it obviously it can't maybe it can i'm not going to make any assumptions can it be anything like the kind of income that you were bringing in from having live people in your theater it's it's the question everyone asks we tell them all our numbers they're like that's wonderful so how are you monetizing that to be able to move forward 
And I'm not assuming that you even have that monetizing it is even the right thing to do. People are taking different tacks on it. Yeah, so we decided we made a choice early on to not monetize it, that we really felt like we're just trying to connect with people. We're just trying to be relevant. I'm like, we're, we're, our whole thing we do is gather people together. And we can't do that right now. And so just to be saying, let's just stay connected with people. Let's let them know, here's the work that we're doing. We would love for you to be a part of it. Now, we have a reading coming up. We're doing, Lauren Gunderson has an autobiographical play called The Heath. And she's doing it with John Larroquette, who I love from Night Court, but is, you know, he's a Tony Award <laughs> from, winner. He's from fantastic. so many things, yeah. That's right. And for that, the only way we're gatekeeping it is that we're asking for people's email addresses for them to be able to see it. Because we just figured you know what, we could make $10,000 off this, we could make $30,000 off this. Really what we need as an organization is like 5,000 new emails. That's really mm-hmm. what we need in terms of what's gonna pay off over and over again down the line. Gave me chills, it's so smart. Just because it's just like, that's what we need in terms of, of going forward. You can make a donation And this happens on a couple of them, like the vast majority of people do not make a donation. And then a handful of people donate like $50 and then a few people donate 500 and someone donated $1,000 because I think people appreciate effort also. So those people are just like, don't just ask me for money over and over again. Have something that's going on. And when it does, I'll be able to support you in a way that makes sense. So I just think like we've chosen not to monetize it. It's it hopefully aids us in terms of we're fundraising now all the time to be able to do that. So I just think it also aids us in that for us to be able to say, this is the type of work that we have going on. Will you support this? And it's an audio play. So that's that's what we're excited to share with everybody. Yeah, I am very, well, (laughs) making a podcast, I am very excited by audio these days. Yeah, and it's autobiographical of Lawrence, but it's also about King Lear. And it was just like, there's no version of people in a Zoom boxes where someone's playing King Lear and Thunder is wailing. It just feels (laughs) silly. So it's, okay, but in an audio play, you could record the audio from your house and a sound designer could put the sounds of the Heath on top of it. And then you could do in your mind the ability to uh, understand what it is and do it. So that we just felt like in the medium, let's not be silly. Let's not have people in boxes acting like they're Shakespeare. But listening to it, your mind can do the rest of it. If there's a silver lining that we even heard from people in doing Zoom theater, everybody likes to say, oh, it's not the same. It's not that. And then we have lots of people that are like, oh my God, like I'm looking at an actor's face like right there. I am up on them to be able to watch what they're going through as opposed to my seat that is normally 450 seats back like you're really with them yeah how do you think that changes the medium though i think this type of zoom theater will be with us forever now like i don't think it's like oh we did this for a year and then we're just going to go back like we have so many people that have found us or we found them through it that I think we need to figure out like how do we continue to do it and we all have reading series and like third spaces and stuff like that where we do readings for 20 people and we're like that was a success but now we could do it for such a larger group of people that are interested so I think like that's going to be a part of our lives going forward and how does it affect when you approach a piece of theater that you're going to do where everybody is in close-ups on their faces versus your thinking about it for the person who's 27 rows back. Now we're saying theater is essentially like film. I guess that's the, the, not that I disagree with having it or having it exist or doing creative things with it, but I just wonder about that switch. How does that affect the art form? We've noticed that our, the performers that do both have had an easier time 
right? Because there's a size question, right? Like how big is your performance? And if you're outdoors trying to make sure that the people a thousand feet away, like you point with two fingers for people to know where it is that you're going. <laughs> and suddenly we're on Zoom and it's like right up front of you. And so many of my favorite friends that are TV actors, they're trained to almost do next to nothing, right? Like the most subtlest movement is what gets communicated. And anything bigger than that feels like aggressive. And so I definitely think we've had to figure out how to do it. I think also I know so many actors that are physical, that are comedic actors, and it's less about the timing of a joke, but like how they use their body. And that has totally been robbed from them in terms of like how they would interpret it. There's no way through Zoom that you understand physical comedy unless you're really staging something and filming it. No. And even if you can have somebody from the waist up when you're talking about physical comedy, for example, it still doesn't you don't feel free enough to really engage in it in the same way. So that is interesting. So I want to ask you about your reopening plans. You are planning My 80-Year-Old Boyfriend, which is written and produced by our mutual friend, Carissa Bertels. Correct. Yeah. We, in terms of thinking about... It's so funny. It was always going to be the start of our season, the season that we didn't have. And when we were trying to figure out, okay, we're coming back in four months. Okay, we're coming back in six months. Okay, we're coming back in 16 months. There was a real question of what stories do people, what are they going to want to hear? What is going to interest them? And I've always come back to this piece because it's about learning, like, how do we heal? But how do we learn to love each other? And I think that's going to be such the question of how do we return and how do, what's it like the first time we can see people and reconnect with them. And so it just feels like it's such a, the perfect piece to be able to get back there again. And also just like Carissa, I think, is such an amazing performer and such a, a generous person mm-hmm. that I'm so excited for that. Oh, my God. It's We're theater people, right? And so I just often think about that first meet and greet when everybody's like there in the room that we're going to do mm-hmm. it and that first day of tech when everybody is there and the first preview audience and we're just gonna just gonna be weepy messes to be able to do it but because we've been so hungry for it and god bless our subscribers we have subscribers who have been calling me for like two months to be like i got my second vaccine let's go what do you have playing and we're just like none of the staff and our artists have been vaccinated but i'm glad that everybody over 65 has gotten it and i just think i i want the piece to be something that is celebratory something that is beautiful something that is theatrical a soprano standing center stage who can fill a 600 seat theater with her voice is something that no matter how well produced a zoom reading is you never get that feeling of hitting you in the chest and so i think that's going to be something very particular to those performances coming back and i think we're ready for a message like that it's going to be that it's going to be positive and that good things can come from horrible things which is so much the message of my 80 year old boyfriend You told me right before we started recording that we realized that we had probably been in the same room together in New York watching a run-through of my 80-year-old boyfriend maybe four years ago. So I didn't realize that you were involved with its inception. I wasn't involved in its inception. So they worked on it for a while. And then they brought me in at some point to say, okay, let's go ahead and figure out how to keep developing this further at that point. So I came in and I was the artistic director at MRT. And so I programmed it. right. Okay. Merrimack Repertory Theater. That's right. So I programmed it there and it was a huge success for us in terms of doing it. And so to be able to program it again and to be able to take the lessons that we learned from the first time and hopefully improve upon it has been a real gift. So talking about your 
subscribers and their eagerness to return after being vaccinated. What has it been like in Arizona in particular? I feel like Arizona was in the news a lot. It just seemed to have been held up a lot. How was it for you? And have you been in touch with other theaters in Arizona? And how did you get the information that you needed to make the decisions that you needed at the state level? And then did it differ for you from what was going on at the national level or what was going on in other regions of the country? Arizona is a, like every place, I'm sure very particular to itself. So Arizona never shut down in any way. That's a bit of its claim to fame. And for many weeks was, I think it had like the highest rate per 100,000 of new cases in the world a couple different times. So that, that was challenging. That said, Arizona is like, you can go for a beautiful walk and not encounter anybody. And that's even on a normal day. There's plenty of open spaces. My wife and I joke that we really picked the right quarantine home because (laughs) we could have been still back in Massachusetts, like avoiding the plague and digging our cars out of snow, as opposed to like sitting by the pool where it's too hot. It's the worst thing that could be said about it. And then I will say the other thing that's been the other end of that that I think I didn't expect and it's wonderful Arizona has been fantastic about the vaccine rollout. We're already at 18 plus. Anybody who's 18 or over can go ahead and get vaccinated. And just the efficiency and the way it's been rolled out and the way it's been communicated has really been wonderful. But I think we're like we're like any state. Like everybody has been making the best decisions that they could with the information that they had at the time. Now for us, so we're the only Lort Theater that operates in two cities. We operate in Tucson and in Phoenix, which means also that we have two different mayors in terms of that are deciding. And one thing definitely, a frustrating thing early in the pandemic is we had a, a governor who very much said like he was gonna leave the decisions to the mayors to be able to make. He was not gonna decide if there needed to be a mask mandate, it's up to the mayors which I think is fine, except if you operate in two different towns. There was going to be like a shelter in place in Tucson, which is where a lot of our staff is, but not in Phoenix, where it's the other part of our staff is. So we definitely had some unique challenges. Whereas if we'd just been in one city or the other, you stay in contact with your elected officials and you find out what it is. We're definitely dealing with two mayors and two city governments and those type of things to be able to figure out what is going on. But that said... Everybody was making the best decisions they could with the information they had. And, and of course, looking back now, none of us knew what we were in for or how long we were in for at the time. That is particularly complex and somehow is making me smile as just, wow, talk about a little bit of a clown car situation. (laughs) Well, and even as we think about reopening, there's a question of what if one mayor decides that we... So actually, so the governor has already said there's no limits. Everybody can open back up. There is no limit in terms of gathering. And the mayors will say something differently. What if one mayor says something different from another? So I just think that's what we're going to have to deal with coming back. Now, that said, we've positioned ourselves. We normally do three shows in the fall. We're going to do two this fall and four in the spring. So that our first show, Carissa's show, will open October 1st. So there'll be some previews at the end of September, and then we'll open October 1st. So with kind of the idea of we're like a not-for-profit organization. Like we're not built for extreme risk-taking in that way. So that way, let us not go first. Let's, let's let both universities start back. Let's let their football teams start back. Let's, be, let's let people 
get used to being a little bit back in regular life and then we can be there to be a part of it we've only announced i think three times and been wrong so this time we thought let's just play it safe in terms of what it is but you listen we're a not-for-profit organization which is considered to be a healthy not-for-profit organization means that half your money comes in through the front door so suddenly every healthy and this is not even the unhealthy organizations are dealing with what if only half your budget came in I have heard from multiple people that only half their budget came in. That's right. That's right. Which is about right. So as we come back, there's a certain amount of expense to turning the lights on, right, of adding people back in. And so we're just going to we're going to be a little cautious. We're going to be a little conservative. We've been wrong before and we would not like to be wrong again. It's interesting with Arizona that you've had the opposite of New York. You've had this sort of open policy and we've had a very closed policy, particularly in New York City and other northeastern states have also been, like you mentioned, Massachusetts. In some ways, it's easier to plan when you're in a closed state because oh, you can't open. And you have this sort of, what should we do? We could open. Yeah. So a lot of our conversations were about what is our responsibility to our audience? Because, and part of the equation is there's no stricter organization than actors' equity. So we couldn't have done things with equity actors. And But it, what's tough about being in a state that has never really closed down is that a lot of people have been going to restaurants have been going out the whole time for a year and a half. So it's hard to be saying, like, as soon as we can possibly return, we'll be with you. But donate in the short term so that we make it back. And they're like, what are you talking about? I go out every weekend to clubs, to restaurants. And listen, we have some non-equity theaters in town that never shut down and did different ways and did it outdoors or did it with social distancing and actors in masks. Our audience doesn't understand the difference of Lort theaters and equity theaters. They just understand that like some theaters are going and some aren't. And so I think that's the confusing part is where in New York, it's nobody's doing anything. You're at least kind of part of the pack. And we're, because we're the only Lort theater here, committed to being a part of unions and paying actors a living wage or barely a living wage. And so we can't come back until we can if we just can't afford to do theater at socially distanced rates well we also had a lot of conversations about what's our responsibility what's especially in the beginning and and it's flipped now but in the beginning when it says like it's disproportionately affecting people that are over 65 are we really gonna do that sunday matinee What are we risking on behalf of our patrons? What type of community organization are we if we're putting profits above people? And so that's been the trick in Arizona. The cool thing about Arizona that I really love is that our audience is not any one thing. And so we have Republicans, we have Democrats, we have all types of people that are out there. And so we have people that believe that we should just have kept going. We have to be able to convince them why we have to stop for 16 months, even though Their steakhouse that they go to, they've still gone to. Have any of your donors, have any of them approached you and said, I don't want to donate anymore because you closed down and and you didn't have to? Has there been anybody who's pushed back in that way? No, none of our our big donors. They've all understood what it is. And we did, I got to give them credit, we did a campaign where we asked people to donate their season subscription back to us. And we had almost a million dollars worth of people that said, we get it. And we had a lot of people that said, I can't do that. I need a refund, which I also understand. 
just in terms of what it is. But no, people have been amazingly supportive. And the fact that we're just, we're still here now is really because of the generosity of our community. And people have really stepped up in terms of donating and, and we're doing online events, we're doing everything to hustle, but really it's from the generosity of people continuing to donate in the hopes that we're able to come back. I think one of the maybe small silver linings of the pandemic seems to be that we as theater people are being told that we matter by people that maybe we weren't sure. I think we all worry so much about our audience and will they stick with us and how do we grow them and how do we keep them wanting to come back? And no, as you said, not everybody has continued to be supportive. I talked to somebody recently who lost half their subscriber base. They just, even though they offered a membership season, they lost half of their subscribers. So no, not everybody, but a lot of people care a lot. And that's really lovely. And, and this has to bring it back to our town. If there is like a silver line that comes out of it, we are all going to appreciate everything so much more in terms of what we get to do. And so I think the theater is the same way in terms of like, how glorious is it that we get to gather and we get to hear this fantastic music and this wonderfully trained singer come out and share this heartwarming story with us. Like we probably would have before been like, ah, did I like it or did I not like it? Very much the kind of thumbs up, thumbs down, we're trying to move everyone away from. And now we're hearing from people, they're like, just make it through this so that we can come back and that we can enjoy it again and that we can sit in a theater and that we can be moved by the material that's on stage. That's just such a perfect button and we could leave it there. But I'd love to hear from you how you and Arizona Theater responded to the push for anti-racist practices in the theater. And do you feel that you were able to make more progress because of the pause? I also like to say when asking this question to my audience that I acknowledge that we are two white people having this conversation. And if we inadvertently trip over ourselves and say the wrong thing, I would really love to have some feedback from people who might have been hurt by our words. So I like to say that before we start. That's great. I appreciate you bringing this conversation up. I I think we've been able to make so much more progress because of the pause in terms of what it is that I don't know that we would have been able to before. So we had already started when I got here making adjustments in terms of our programming and kind of color conscious casting. And I think if there's a a change that's happened, I do think I have like several audience members who were a little exhausted by our efforts beforehand to do that, that over this pause have really actually suddenly now turned the corner and are proud of the work that we were doing beforehand because they suddenly think, oh, we were we were in line with what the conversation was in the country. Maybe I just didn't realize what it is. And let's be honest, so my board now has a cultural diversity committee where board members work to figure out how can we work to be more culturally diverse? What are the steps that we can do? Mm-hmm. What are the barriers that have been part of stopping us from being diverse? We didn't have that a year ago. And so I think... For so long, often boards and staffs are in different places when it comes to where they feel like the the organization is moving. And we're no different, Mm -hmm. probably. Like, our staff is probably more aggressive and farther along than our board is. But the fact that our board is there 
is huge in terms of where it is. And we were invited to be, there's a foundation called the Ten Chimneys Foundation, and they wanted to have a, a summit on how to make a more anti-racist theater. And I asked if our board president could be a part of it. And she was great, and she was fantastic. And so that type of time, that type of dedication to it, that never would have happened in regular times for be able to do it. And when we switched to our online digital season, maybe this would have happened anyway, but we were, of course, more aware of it. 60% of the artists that we hired were artists of color. For the most part, that is just the work. I think that is exciting to us and is exciting to me. And, but we definitely were able to clock that. Right, this is something that Arizona Theater Company is doing. These are the artists that we're supporting. This is the type of work that we're putting out. And I think, I think we probably, from a programming standpoint, would have done exactly the same thing in regular times. But I think our audience was more willing to take it in because they were aware of what was going on in the world. I think every theater is at a different place in terms of its journey. And I've definitely worked at theaters who are much farther along. And you look at theaters like Woolly Mammoth that are like, well, they are doing it. They are ahead of us to be able to do it. And then you look at theaters that are in the Arizonas, Texases, and Floridas of the world. And trying to move an organization along is at a different speed. And so if in many ways this moment, a silver lining of it, has given so many of us cover to be able to continue to do the work that we've wanted, to be able to program the artists that we're excited by. And our audience, I think, is interested and is game in a way that they weren't before. But I think there's a newfound understanding, because we say all the time, right? Like, we have to reflect our community. And I think, like, our board and donors, like, love to hear that. That sounds good. But what does that really mean in terms of doing it? And so now when they see it, they have a better understanding of what it is the work that we're doing and how we're trying to make sure that we really reflect the community that we live in. Is there a difference between Phoenix and Tucson in terms of the makeup of the community? There's a huge difference in those two. And both cities have like things that other people believe about them and they believe about themselves. But any two cities are different in terms of what it is. I I will just say also this, like Phoenix is the fifth biggest city in the country. It just passed Philadelphia. Did not know that. Oh, I'm so sorry for Philadelphia, but wow, that's... I know, know poor Philadelphia. Poor Philly. I know, it's just been downhill since Ben Franklin. I know. But so it's... uh, And Tucson is a very kind of smaller, charming, near-the-border artist and art-focused town. So they're like any two downs. It's San Diego to Los Angeles. So I think part of the joy is when we do new plays, and we, we talk about this as a plus, is that your play will get done in terms of two very different audiences. Mm. In terms of what the reactions are. Karen Zacharias did when she did Native Gardens with us, she was like, they laugh at different things in Phoenix than they laugh at in Tucson. And it's, yeah, of course they do, because they're there, there's a different person that lives in a giant metropolis than a person that wants to live in a kind of artist-friendly, amazing Mexican food place down in Tucson. So I think that's part of the joy. It's like we're every show is in two very different audiences. That's so yummy. That's just so fun. I love that. And I think for us as an organization, the, the truth about Phoenix is there are literally millions of people who have never heard of us. So at other theaters I've been a part of, you're like, well, everybody knows and they're coming. And probably even in Tucson, like most people know about us. And our job is either to bring them back or to do something that's exciting to them. In Phoenix, like 
never heard of you. Never heard of the arts, never. So it's, okay, that's such opportunity for growth. And listen, I grew up in Mesa, which is not even Phoenix. It's a city next to Phoenix. We say Phoenix when we leave the state, but really there's all these other little cities next to it that are full of people. So it's like, how do those people have access to the arts in downtown Phoenix? I'm just so fascinated by the fact that you're in two cities. We are the only it's, theater that's in two cities. Now that we're talking about it, yeah. it's really cool. Yeah, most, it, you know, it's so interesting. It's like most people think it's a terrible idea because all theater is local, right? And so it's like how to really invest into your community. But I think it's our, I think it's going to go from being our weakness to being our strength because first of all, when you're an actor and you come work with us, it's an 11 week contract because we're going to rehearse, then we're going to do it in one city and then we're going to go to another. I don't know what it's going to end up being, but it used to be that 12 weeks got you your health insurance. So that's one gig that can do the majority of the work there. I know they just changed the rules, but so I think that's exciting in terms of what it is. But I just think also when we develop any shows, right, when you develop new work, the fingerprints of the town that you're in have such an effect. You do three previews and nobody laughs at a joke. That joke is gone by preview four. These authors that have their work in two different cities are going to get two very different audiences to be able to see what works and what isn't. It's like somewhere in the middle of obviously your typical regional theater that has one location and some kind of tour. And also, there's something really cool about the idea of you're in the same state the entire time. And so you're still serving a community. It's maybe a community of Arizonans and not just two Tucsonites. I make that up. But Tucsonians is what they say. Tucsonians. And Phoenicians. I actually really love it. Phoenicians. Yeah. I feel like this could be a model that actually could bring theater to more people, especially in large state, lots of open space, populations spaced out. I think it's a really cool idea. And I will say, even think about this from a digital standpoint. So we have two readings coming up online that are going to be streamed into 32 different schools across the state. And, And that's because we're in two different cities. So there are two different sets of high schools and there are two different sets of towns that are right next to them that currently have no arts education going on. We're able to reach 32 schools, not just because we're awesome, which is part of it, but it's also (laughs) because you're right, we are in two different counties. We are in two different school districts. We are, there's a lot more people to be able to serve. When I was at MRT, we were in Lowell and it was like, we, we were getting everybody. We were getting all the school. We were like that, I think that organization will never grow to be any bigger and that's okay because it was probably, that's what that area could sustain and keep going at a healthy level. We are not that. We have nothing but potential in terms of how we can Mm. grow. Yeah, and states with the same kind of, like I said, lots of space, people spread out. Seems like something that's really worth looking at in terms of a not a business model per se, but maybe a a mission model. Yeah, no, we're, so we were named the state theater And sometimes we ask, what does that mean? And some days I know, and some days I don't. But on days that I know, it has a lot to do with, like, we're charged with supporting not just our town and not just these streets. It's no, we're charged with how to make Arizona a hub of creativity and education. Okay, that's a button. That's amazing. I do love to ask, just as we're wrapping up, what's giving you joy right now? What's giving me joy these days is that because we're hoping to go, I've been having these Zoom calls with artists and composers and actors, and we're all like a little gun shy to be like, 
It's going to happen, but we're getting excited about plans to get back in a room. And it really feels like it's going to happen. And so that has been the part that is really mind-blowing to me is, oh, my God, like, we're calling actors and we're seeing, like, are you available to start December 20th? Because if you are, we think it's going to happen. And they say, of course I'm available. I've had nothing right. to do here. <laughs> and we're like, great, write it in, not in pencil. Let's do it. Let's. And I think that's all really exciting at this point to be able to say that those conversations with artists that aren't me calling to say your show has been postponed or your show has been canceled or we finally get to walk that back yeah just to talk about the work for a real moment and not in the context of let's work on it so it's ready for someday to be like no let's work on it because people are going to see it sometime Mm. and that's the that's an exciting point to be i'm so thrilled that as we sit here in april that we can say that and that you can say that and that you have a season that you're you know, going to bring to life any minute now. So congratulations and thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I think people are going to be fascinated. Oh, thank you. I just appreciate you for continuing to lift up artist voices. We, we need this more than ever. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we all do. So let's lift them up. Thank you for having me on the show and thank you for everything you do. Thank you, Sean.